From war across the globe to regulating speech to printing trillions of dollars, the American regime accepts no limits on its power. As Ludwig von Mises understood, the state will take as much power as the people will let it. And in recent years, the American regime has clearly concluded it can get away with unilaterally adopting vast new powers. Join Michael Rechtenwald, Ted Galen Carpenter, Jonathan Newman, and more for a Mises Institute event in Nashville, Tennessee on September 23rd, dedicated to this siege of power and one of Ron Paul's favorite lines, truth is treason in the empire of lies. Tickets begin at $95. Get yours at Mises.org slash Nashville 23. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash Nashville 23. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Jonathan, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. So, folks, what we're going to be talking about today is there's very good news. Last week, the Federal Reserve came out and said their staffers were no longer forecasting a recession. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief. And what was interesting to me, Jonathan, was that all of these economists on Twitter were like coming forward to kind of explain like, yeah, I know I was worried about a recession in some of my earlier tweets a few months ago, but, but really, you know, if you look at it, I wasn't as really that way. They're all making an excuse. Like it just became a given that, oh yeah, we're not having a recession anymore. And then people who had not been forecasting a recession were all running victory laps. Like, yeah, we told you so. And that. Anyway, I was kind of flummoxed about it, so I'll as we go through this episode, I'll share my thoughts, but I just want to get your initial reaction on this episode. Sure. What's uh what's interesting is about those economists that you mentioned is they don't really give a a reasoning for what what caused them to change their mind except for just the mere passes of time. So like a couple months have gone by and we haven't seen a big increase in the unemployment rate, and so they're, you know, declaring victory. They've got the mission accomplished banner in the background. But they they don't really it looks like uh, it looks like they're not looking to the future. It looks like they they've just they they're quick to they're they're jumping the gun on this. It seems like they don't really have a good reasoning for why they're why they have this view that there's going to be a soft landing, except for just they haven't they haven't seen a hard landing yet. Therefore, we must be having a, a soft landing. Right. Like, and yeah, I'm glad you used that phrase because I think I forgot to say that, that that's the, the cliched phrase going around. So I guess. No one ever spelled this out for me. I don't know if you know the etymology of that term. Presumably, it means like we're in a plane and we went through some turbulence and whatever, but now the pilot's going to be able to land softly rather than crash. Is that is that what? what you're- it, yeah. So just in my brief little bit of research, yeah, I saw that. Uh, it, yeah, it goes back to aeronautics and and yeah, flying planes. But yeah, the idea is that in the case of a hard landing, it would mean that the the Fed is raising interest rates and that triggers. Uh, a crisis and a recession and a big increase in unemployment, especially, and and a soft landing would be they can raise interest rates without causing all of those negative consequences. Yeah. So why don't we maybe first give a little context because it, it's tricky. I was trying to explain Jonathan to. There's this group with a um, this one firm where I do a lot of training for, and I was trying to explain my views and what's going on like with the Phillips curve and the team transit. And it gets pretty nuanced because it's actually like these the two main groups that were arguing for you know mainstream circles over the last couple of years. I think they were both wrong. 
And so it's a little bit tricky to, to try to, you know, referee the dispute. But for a while, folks, so after COVID, you know, there's the stimulus checks and the Fed increased its balance sheet tremendously, even more than it had done during the rounds of QE. Uh, the federal government, like I say, with the stimulus checks and so forth and tax receipts fell off a cliff for a, a period there. Just huge increases in the debt. And, and so then price inflation starts rising. And by the way, folks, in this episode, I may just uh, to save time, just say inflation. But usually what we mean is consumer price inflation. Um, and and so then this big debate arose and some people with like Lawrence Summers and such, you know, like heavy hitters that are Keynesians were saying, wow, the Fed's getting behind the curve here. We don't want to let inflation expectation, you know, that genie get out of the bottle. They need to start hiking aggressively, um, you know, to get this under control. And then so-called team transitory was saying, no, 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 these spikes in CPI that we are that are coming in in the latest readings, this is all transitory, hence the name of their team. And we don't raise rates fed or at least do it very cautiously and slowly uh, because we don't want to tip the economy back into recession. You know, let's err on the side of letting the economy overheat, to use a different metaphor that they often use where it's like a, an engine. Um, rather than, you know, we don't want to throw people out of work and they, within they had rationale to like, oh, well, there's, you know, the, there were bottlenecks supply chain issues during COVID, but that's all kind of going away now. So these, we agree with you guys, team transitory, we had the likes of like Paul Krugman and such Alan Blinder on it. They were saying, yeah, we agree back in like a normal environment. If we saw CPI coming in, like it's been doing like early 2022 and so forth. We agree the right thing to do would be to have aggressive rate hikes to get that under control, but this isn't a normal time, and let's not let's err on the side of helping workers. As it was the idea, and then and again the the other team I don't know if they had a, a name or not like team orthodoxy I guess were saying uh, no we do need to aggressively raise and and they were admitting too that yeah unfortunately we're going to have to throw millions of people out of work that's just the breaks sorry and there was like Oaken's Law or something you know they had all these standard Keynesian diagnoses and toolkit uh elements to explain their perspective so that it was like the one side was saying no this inflation is going to go away on its own if you raised rates rapidly it would throw out millions of people out of work and we don't need to do that and the other side was saying we agree if we raise raise rapid rates rapidly it'll throw millions of people out of work but we do need to do that to get inflation under control so then what happened in practice is the fed raised rates aggressively and millions of people didn't get thrown out of work and now both sides are kind of scratching their head like, huh, that's kind of weird. And so <laughs> and th so that's that's one element of this. So as an Austrian, of course, I disagree with all that. But yet at the same time, I still do think there's going to be a bad recession coming. So I'll stop here because I've been, you know, but it's 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 nuanced, Jonathan, right? Like it's hard to actually go in and explain to people because it's, you know, yeah, I disagree with Krugman, but that doesn't mean I agree with the people he was arguing with. It's like it's hard to. Right. And I, I'm glad you mentioned the engine metaphor that's often used and also the Phillips curve, because I think the the in the background of all these economists minds is is like a hydraulic view of the economy that the Fed can just sort of tinker with this with this one policy, the, in, the interest rate, the federal funds rate. And that this, if they can just do it carefully enough or slowly enough, then they can just sort of gently ease this entire complex economy into a into a new equilibrium. Uh, and the idea is that. The, the idea is that there's no there's no uh, real fundamental. It, it's all just like these a, a certain amount of consumption spending, a certain amount of investment spending that's happening, and that 
And the idea is that the Federal Reserve can just sort of like gently guide all of these big aggregates uh, into a long run equilibrium by just by tinkering with this one policy rate. Right. And it's um, another thing, too, that goes along with all this. And I'm sure you've seen this this language, Jonathan, and, you know, for the folks at home, just to try to explain what where this is coming from. So the big picture is, yes, just about everybody from the mainstream who's chiming in on this stuff. They have a very Keynesian aggregate demand management framework or mindset. And so to them, what causes unacceptably high price inflation, it's that, oh, the Fed was too loose and the mechanism or the channel is that means you have a tight labor market. Like with extra money, you know, lower interest rates and more money getting pumped in, that means firms, you know, their sales go up. And so they hire more workers and that bids up wages. And now the workers, you know, so now wage rates are rising rapidly. Unemployment comes way down. And then now workers armed with these wage increases and, and there, you know, there's, there's no slack left in the labor market. And so there's nothing, the only way that steam can get out of that engine now is, is if uh, prices start rising. And then on the flip side, to get inflation under control, yeah, unfortunately we got a slash aggregate demand and yep, that'll get inflation under control, all right. But then the downside is you'll get excess slack in the labor market and unemployment has to go up. And so that's, that's you know, summed up famously in the so-called Phillips curve, as, as Jonathan alluded to. And so that's the mechanism. And so it's just weird to me that that's still the framework they're using when, you know, I was taught that, oh, the 1970s stagflation experience was the death blow to at least the old school crude version of the Phillips curve. And now we have a more nuanced one where it, there's a short run Phillips curve and da, 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 da. but anyway, just it's still it amazing to me. And Krug, I don't have it in front of me, but like a lot of Krugman's follow ups where he's arguing with people, it's like to them, it the the only way that monetary policy can affect prices is going through the labor market, and it's almost like by definition, if you had slack in the labor market, then you can't have rising prices, and vice versa. Um, and and so you know that element. As an Austrian, I, I would just challenge it and say, no, the two don't. You can have full employment and stable or even falling prices. There's nothing contradictory about that. And on the other hand, you can have massive price hikes with high unemployment. I mean, like Zimbabwe, fame, you know, just one example of an extreme one where it's not like the Zimbabwe unemployment rate was 0.1% when they had their hyperinflation. No, they had high unemployment while they also had a currency collapse. So anyway, it's just it's it's hard to to even know where to begin to, to when you start trying to like wade into this stuff yeah i like to refer to it as the phillips blob and not the phillips curve simply because even if you just look at it empirically it's it's all over the place and and i know they have a response to that which is that there are shifts in aggregate supply that explain that like the breakdown of the short run trade off but it's it's still funny that it seems like it almost seems like a cop out it's like yeah this relationship is true except in cases where it's not we and we have this sort of like backdoor explanation for it right and uh well I'll put a link folks on the show notes page if you haven't looked at it yet um Robert Lucas in his Nobel prize winning lecture or, or paper. I don't, I don't know if he got there actually reads the thing, but um, I've never won the Nobel prize. So I'm not exactly sure what the protocol is, but if you go in like the, it's the, the paper or the remarks that are tied to his, his winning of the prize is actually the, the first couple pages are actually understandable to the layperson, And he does get into that and talks about how um, if you just looked at it decade by decade and plotted for, for the U S unemployment versus 
CPI inflation, you know, in terms of like annual rates, then yep, it does seem like there's a downward sloping curve. But what's interesting is the curve moves, right? It's not the same curve from decade to decade. And then if you lump it all together and say, oh, what's, you know, do a scatter plot of unemployment versus inflation rates from in the US from like 1950 to 1990, it's just a, a cloud, right? It's not like there's this nice tight downward. And so that's the sense in which to, you know, that's why like he and, you know, guys like Milton Freeman, I guess would say in the long run, there's no trade-off. But, you know, if you, if you hold a bunch of things equal in the short run, there might be. And Lucas has his own way of explaining that with rational expectations that the Fed comes and dumps a bunch of money in the system and people weren't expecting it. They might temporarily be fooled and businesses might think that, oh, wow, we're, you know, we're, we're killing it. We have, we're good forecasters. We're in the right sector of the market. And that's why our sales are going up. It's not just because all oh, the feds open up the monetary spigots. And so they might hire more workers, but then eventually everybody gets wise to, oh, wait a minute. It's just, you know, there's more money going around and, and, and unemployment returns, that sort of thing. Um, is it, so I guess, Jonathan, maybe you, you want to speak a bit, let me set it up. What's interesting is it's not merely my a priori, uh, mindset as an Austrian economist coming onto this, it's even looking at standard uh, empirical evidence. Uh, I like, like you said earlier, John, I don't understand why they're so confident. For example, um, I went back and looked at the data. So we'll put this up on the screen, uh, folks, for those of you who are watching the video version of this. And um if you, I went back to like the prelude to the 2008 crisis. Okay, so technically that recession that's now called the Great Recession started in December 2007, according to the way the NBER dates those things or scores them. And so uh, originally, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, there was the dot-com crash and then the September 11th attacks. Alan Greenspan was the head of the Fed at the time, started bringing interest rates down. They got down to 1%, by which I mean the federal funds rate, got down to 1% by June of 2003, held it at 1% for a year. That you know The housing bubble is really starting to pick up now. CPI starts rising. So from June 2004 forward, every time the Fed met, they were raising rates steadily. And they did that all the way up until July 2006, at which point the federal funds rate peaked at 5.25%. Right, just like you know, now July 2023, they stopped hiking after it hit 5.25 percent. Well, we think they're going to stop hiking. Okay, so very similar. And back then, at the time, unemployment had been steadily falling, right? Because there was that recession in the early 2000s, and then uh, you know they dropped rates and started right. And un the unemployment rate had kept kept falling. It was it was a gentle fall. They call that the jobless recovery. People might remember, but still, technically, the unemployment rate the whole time was coming down. Even after they stopped raising rates in July of 2006, the unemployment rate kept falling all the way through to May 2007, okay? So almost a full year after they you know, stopped hiking rates because they thought, okay, we think we got things under control here, the unemployment rate kept going down. And so it, you know, at the time, in other words, all the reasons that right now they're saying, okay, we're out of the woods, we got a soft landing, that was true back then as well, right? It wasn't that unemployment started rising rapidly. That No, they said, okay, we raised rates steadily over the course of a while here. We raised them from 1% all the way up to 5.25%. We're starting to get CPI under control. This housing bubble is starting to now, you know, 
get it a little under control. Everything seems great. And so my, my question is, would it be fair to say as of late 2006 that the Fed had achieved a soft landing and, and you know gotten the housing bubble under control? Most people would say no. They had sown the seeds for the worst crisis since the 1930s. And so likewise, you know, the data right now are eerily similar to that. And yet everyone's running around talking about, oh, yeah, yeah, a few soft landing. And you know, we, we never fell for the, the fear mongering like some of those right wingers. Ha ha ha. Joe Biden for the win. And it's like, what are you talking about? And then I noticed, Jonathan, I don't know if you want to speak to a bit that you found uh, some newspaper clippings from from back then. Yeah. Like to, to show it's not just the data, but actually, yeah, the interpretation in real time back then. Yeah, I saw you post that uh, data of the the unemployment rate and the uh, and interest rates, and it, it was the data that you were just describing. And so I thought it would be interesting to to look back at uh, financial news headlines back at during that time period when well, the time period that you're saying is like the one today, where interest rates have come up and it looks like unemployment is uh, down and is sort of settling there. And so I look back at the headlines and it's it's stuff like this: IMF survey soft landing ahead for U.S. economy. Fed chairman projects soft landing for U.S. economy. U.S. economy on track for soft landing, according to the Dallas Fed. That's the, that's the one in September. Uh, U.S. inflation pressures are easing, and the economy should manage a soft landing, said the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. The Fed sees a soft landing for the economy. It's the Financial Times. And so these uh, uh, it. What's funny is that these headlines, you could see the, these exact same headlines today, including some of the taglines, some of the data about interest rates and the unemployment rate. And it's funny, uh, it's, it's funny to just compare those headlines. And those were all in 2007 to the sorts of headlines that we see today where people are claiming the same things that we've achieved this soft landing. And of course, in hindsight, we can look back at 2008 and 2009 and see there was a a major uh, crisis that happened after. And so it seems like people maybe uh, haven't learned their lesson or it's uh, <clears throat> one thing that we haven't mentioned is, is that there is one big difference between uh, 2007 and uh, um, current times. And that is that we, we just came out of this very strange crisis with COVID and the lockdowns where uh, w- one thing that I've, I've thought about that would give me caution to say that there will definitely be a recession this year or or very soon is I'm not sure how much uh, liquidation of malinvestment happened during that time period. So I know that there were all the PPP loans and there was a lot of inflation. And so there's a chance that uh, malinvestments weren't liquidated at all. And in fact, entrepreneurs just sort of doubled down on it because because of all of the easy money. But I, I do wonder, because of all of the uncertainty and all, all of the uh, business closures that happened during during that time period, I wonder the extent to which we have that sort of built up malinvestment this time around, as compared to like the 2007 time period in which we had like you know five or six years of a housing bubble brewing. So I, I'm not I'm not sure that the analogy stretches that much. But what do you think about that? Uh, so yeah, good good point. Um, another difference too, and, and I'll circle back and then sure. talk more about what you're saying. But I wanted to. Just- say this before I forget that it came up. Um, I was talking to Vance Jin on his podcast uh, that the structural change with the way the fed operates that I guess they started in October, 2008, where they pay interest on reserves. And so, you know, nowadays with, if the feds raising rates, strictly speaking, it doesn't have to be in conjunction with 
sucking reserves out of the system. It can just be that they increase the rate that they're paying banks to keep reserves parked at the Fed. And so that's so, you know, normally with a standard textbook description, the two things are it's two sides of the same coin that when the Fed, quote, tightens, the interest rates go up short term, at least interest rates go up as the Fed is selling off assets and pulling reserves out of the system. And so the two are kind of interchangeable, whereas, again, now, strictly speaking, the Fed could be raising rates, even though it's not sucking reserves out of the system. So then the issue is, is that the same type of tightening or or does that, you know, does that matter Mm -hmm. as much? Yeah. as you know the old school one so so yes there are some differences like that and you're right jonathan i do worry about covid was such a weird you know those lockdowns were such a weird element that it's you know it, it's not as obvious that this what we have right now is just pure a pure textbook austrian boom bust cycle because of that that weird thing so having said all that though i still do think all the ingredients are in place um another element too with all this where again this isn't just us being weird heterodox austrians off in the corner but just the inverted yield curve right that's another thing that if we if we do have a soft landing and there's no recession then besides you know uh hyperbolic right wingers being wrong it would be the first time at least in the post-war era where the yield curve quote you know signaled an impending recession and was wrong Right. So again, it you know, that's not impossible. That might happen. Maybe we will say, oh, this time was different, but there's lots of reasons on paper that yeah, you should still think a bad recession is coming, and yet uh the mainstream are all just taking it as a given now that oh yeah, that danger's passed. So it's just odd to me. Um Well, I I guess just to to pursue what you're saying there, Jonathan, about COVID, what was interesting is the yield curve had also inverted in the summer of twenty nineteen. And so, you know, I was telling financial audiences and stuff that, yeah, according to that metric, we should expect a recession, you know, within the 12 to 18 months, something like that. And then we did have one, right? It was the COVID. And so there it wasn't clear, you know, I wasn't proven wrong because there wasn't like, what more could I have done to be right? There was recession, unemployment went through the roof. But I know some people could have said, well, you got lucky. Like the government kind of made there be a recession. You know what I mean? So it's you know hard to say. So I don't know too how much that, you know, that's a weird element too, where according to that, there should have been just a normal boom bust. You know, they had easy money policies after the financial crisis. And then once they started tightening, then the yield curve inverted. And so had COVID never happened, I still think we would have had a pretty bad recession mm-hmm. around, you know, it might have it might have kicked in a little bit later than, you know, it may have been the lockdowns you know, pulled it forward in time from what it otherwise would have been. But yeah, I thought we had a recession that was already going to hit in 2020 anyway. Yeah. So uh, that's why a lot of people say that uh, it was uh, sort of like a double dip recession in uh, in 2020. So we had all the COVID stuff, but there were also some people were saying that, like like you said, we were due for another financial crisis. In fact, I think the, the Mises Institute published a little uh, book on that that very idea that Um, And it was all timely pieces about how we were leading up uh, to a recession. And this was all stuff that was written about and and thought about before uh, COVID was on anybody's uh, mind. And so a lot of people, that's what, that's what leads me to think about, well, suppose, suppose we did, and it was just masked. So like, suppose all of the COVID, the lockdown measures and the, and the loans and the stimulus checks, suppose all of that just sort of nominally, Massed over the um, 
the liquidation of malinvestment that we typically see in a bust. And so either we didn't we didn't get that uh, correction or there was a correction that just coincided with all of the other things. And since it's all it's all a big wash, it's really hard to, to disentangle. And and that's why I said earlier that the, the, the idea that there could have been because of a bunch of entrepreneurial um, uncertainty and maybe people cutting back um, in, in businesses that they had started before during the COVID years, uh, it could be that we're, we're not due for at least as big of a recession or bust as like what we saw in, uh, in 2008, simply because we just had this, we had this big cycle where a lot of businesses shut down um, huge spike in unemployment that came uh, back down pretty quickly. Uh, but the idea is that there what there was already that sort of financial and entrepreneurial reset that happened not too long ago, which means I, I'm not I'm not trying to say that uh, we're definitely not going to have a recession. It just in my mind it, it means that we could have either a lighter one than we might be anticipating, or it could it co- could come later than than we might expect. Okay, yeah, another wild card in all this is interesting is that the savings rate actually went way up mm-hmm. during the lockdown phase, you know, for the simple reason, like this is like literally forced saving where, you know, a lot of people were still, you know, if they could work from home and whatever, they're still employed and they couldn't go spend their money. You know, the government literally said, no, stay home. <laughs> so like that's, you, if you look at the conventional measures, folks of the, the personal savings rate in the U S it went way up during the lockdown phase, which is exactly what, you know, somebody like Murray Rothbard would say like, oh, given that there's a boom bust cycle and the male investments had been made and now we're entering into the bust, what can be done? And he would always say, well, the public could save a lot and that would help justify, you know, some of those male investments actually wouldn't turn out to have been so bad if people actually did save more, which, you know, I think he partly said that just to contrast the Austrian view from the Keynesians, Mm -hmm. because according to the Keynesians, the absolute worst thing to do. Yeah if the economy's tipping into recession is to save more money. Like, no, 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 that's what's causing the recession. Go spend. And, you know, Rothbard was saying the polar opposite. So that's why I always like that part of his analysis. But again, so it's um, ironic that yeah, given, I guess another way of putting it is suppose for whatever reason that yeah, the yield curve had inverted in the summer of 2019, and then we were in store for a recession and suppose there's no COVID. And then a lot of Americans just decided, you know what, we're really living paycheck to paycheck. We got to get our savings in order and, and let's just not go out to eat for the next eight months. And everybody just decided to do that because they wanted to save more from an Austrian perspective. You know, the Keynesians would freak out and say, Oh my gosh, that's going to cause unemployment. And then the, the waiters and waitresses aren't going to have money and then they're not going to spend. And then those people aren't going to spend. And it's just going to, we're going to end up, you know, living like stone age. Whereas the Austrians, again, if these were voluntary choices, would say, no, 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 it'll just free up resources and they'll get real. Okay, so, uh, you know, it, there's a big difference, of course, whether something's voluntary versus ordered at gunpoint. But my point is that, yes, some of these things, um, it, it may, it may be that during the lockdown, it wasn't so much like it was preventing male investments from being made. And it may, and maybe I'm just echoing what you're trying to say, Jonathan, that looking at what the Fed did, normally we as Austrians would say, oh my gosh, that is just completely distortionary. That's going to cause all kinds of male investments. But on the other hand, if, because you literally were not legally allowed to do anything or just because like everybody kind of realized this is a weird environment, let's just keep our powder dry, that maybe it's, you know, a, a lot of the male investments that normally would have been made with such easy money 
were, were postponed. You know, that, that could be a, a situation. So I guess, yeah, I, I get what you're saying that th- th- what may end up happening could be not as severe as one might have thought had some of these policies happened in a more normal environment. Yeah. And one, one thing's for sure, we definitely cannot trust the uh, the pronouncements and announcements of of like the top economists, especially at the Federal Reserve, because like I like I was reading with those other headlines, those are those were based on announcements from the Fed that the reporting agencies were picking up and uh, making headlines out of them. Uh, and you just have to think about a world in which like what if the Fed chair were completely honest about his or her projections about the future? So like suppose uh suppose they came out and said yeah we're definitely going into a, a severe recession later this year everybody buckle down everybody get ready and of course that would that would cause that that would you know bring about the crisis uh, much earlier so so one one thing since you started off this episode talking about all the economists and other people that are saying we're we're definitely heading into a soft landing one thing's for sure is that we cannot put any stock in that we have to discount that pretty much right. 100% simply because they're they're relying on the announcement effect uh, that and, and another thing that that does is that that uh that allows them to cast blame on some other like shock or some other event that that might happen down the road and they can they can say that you know this is this was out of our control it's not something that we were expecting it's definitely not something that we uh designed or knew about as we were crafting our monetary policy it's the result of this shock it's the result of this this uh this sort of thing occurring in the economy. It's not, it's not because of our, you know, wise, sophisticated data driven is common term, mm. uh, monetary policy. Right. And I want to just underscore, so make sure people understood why I was chuckling so much when you were going through that, those list of headlines or that list of headlines is that one of them, I think it was the Dallas fed was from September of 2007 saying, you know, if we forecast a soft landing or something like that, and the reason that's hilarious is because the official start of that recession, in other words, folks at home, you might have thought, oh, okay, so they were off by a year, right? Because the financial crisis you know, really hit in September of 2008. But no, the actual recession of which the financial crisis was a part began, at least according to the official measures, in December of 2007. So they were only, what, October, three months. And they were saying in September, yep. Yeah, we're out of the woods here. This is great. They were three months later, the recession officially began. And also just so people understand how goofy this stuff is, it's, it's not, they don't even know when they're in the midst of a recession, right? So when Janet Yellen was put up as a possible, as a nominee to replace Bernanke, right? I'm getting my timeline, right? Her defenders came for, you know, so she had her critics and defenders and part of what people were saying, who were talking about how awesome Janet Yellen was, is that they went back to when she was just you know, not the chair, but just one of the person, people on the FOMC. And so she was at the Fed meeting in December of 2007. And they all went around, you know, like they released the transcripts of those meetings, like after a lag. And so by the point when she was being nominated, you know, they had um, the, the notes from that meeting and they went around the room and everyone's talking about their views in the economy. And she was the most bearish. And she said she thought the U.S. might be in store for a recession. She didn't say, I think we're in a recession right now, which they were. <laughs> it was just, so it's just hilarious to me that everyone to prove how present she was said, oh, look at when the recession had started, she was the one Fed economist in that room <laughs> who knew 
times might not be rosy in the future. <laughs> like you get them like that's how much they're grading on a curve. They there's a given that yeah, everyone in the room was clueless. It was just she had an inkling at least that maybe, you know, we have tough times ahead even. So my joke at the time was to say not only did she not um predict a recession, she didn't even post-dict the recession, right? That it had already begun and she didn't even realize and yet, you know, she was being lauded there. So th that's Again, just so people understand how this stuff works, that when the NBER, the, what's that, National Bureau of Economic Research, mm -hmm. I, think that's, I think that's what it is, um, you know, when they when you go to their website and look at the history of recessions, they got the peak and trough of the business cycles broken down by quarter. That's something they do retroactively. Like, it's in real time, they don't even know. Like, you know, because, again, the economy is a big complex thing, but that's the way this stuff works. So what may end up happening is, even as of this Christmas this year, people might still be arguing and talking about, you know, oh, yeah, I remember when people were warning about a recession. And for all we know, at, later down the road, they will retroactively say, yep, actually, we were in a recession at that point. It, not only that, but uh, it sometimes they'll go back and they'll revise. In fact, every time they'll go back and revise already published GDP. So you're right, there's a lag in them publishing GDP figures. But even after they publish it, they'll go back and revise it again. Uh, the the reason I bring this up is because I saw that uh, one of the articles in preparing for this uh, show, one of the articles that I read was um, about some some Bank of America economist who was he was looking at the uh, Atlanta Fed's GDP now, which tries to come up with a like a, a concurrent or a, uh, con yeah contemporary what's the word I'm looking for yeah current GDP is um like at, like as we speak like what what is right. this quarter's gdp going to be based on data that they're collecting at the moment contemporaneous is that the word yeah maybe so maybe <laughs> uh but but the idea is that th so he's he's looking at that and that their newest update shows that there's not going to be a slide in gdp and so and so that's that's what's giving him all of this confidence in the world to say, yeah, we, we've averted the possible, uh, the recession that we were talking about before, we're definitely not going to go into it now. It's simply because I'm looking at this, the GDP now statistic that the Atlanta Fed is compiling, and it's showing that, you know, we're going to have some modest GDP growth. Uh, and of course, I, while I was reading this, I was thinking about, well, yeah, so they're coming up with this estimate now, but even after they published the real figure, the NBER does, uh, they oftentimes they come back and they will say, yeah, well, we miscalculated this or we forgot to take this into account. And so we've got to make adjustments after the fact. And so it, ju it just seemed uh, it seemed very courageous to to make such a prediction off such a, a tenuous current estimate of a huge number. I mean, and even on its own terms, we're only in the third quarter. Yeah. So maybe he's right. OK, and third quarter growth is whatever it is. Fine. That doesn't mean fourth quarter couldn't be negative you know what i mean like yeah, it's not yeah. gdp to come you know the gdp of future christmases or something so <laughs> it's uh even on its own terms even you know, like to say yeah right now the economy is still growing okay and this is i guess this is what i'm just to underscore my point folks um some of the people running victory laps are like from the mmt camp and they are doing things like saying, oh, you know, and they're quote, like one of them was quoting me that when the yield curve began to be sharply inverted and I was saying, OK, you know, if history is our guide, that means we're going to have a recession. And did it. And I did on one of them from a while ago. I, I think I did put a time frame on there and I was being sloppy like that. I shouldn't have done that. But the correct assessment is in terms of, you know, if you look at past yield curve inversions 
and then the time lag between when does the thing invert and and it's hard to know like what do you, what do you do do you base it on when it bounces back and starts coming up or when it first breaks through you, you know what I mean so there's some differences there but still you know looking at that is why I had been saying for a long time I thought yeah by the end of 2023 or first quarter of 24 is when I thought just looking at the yield curves not because I'm an Austrian not you know because I hate Joe Biden or anything like that but just looking at the standard lags that that's when you would expect it to kick in if the yield curve gap between it's going sharply negative and then when the next you know gray bars on the timeline show up that's what you would expect and so it was just weird to me that like this MMT guy he was saying ah see people were warning about a recession because the yield curve but we in the MMT camp knew that the Fed raising rates actually was pumping more money into the economy because now the federal government given how big the debt is the federal government now has to make higher interest payments on the debt, given that interest rates are rising across the the, the whole curve, and so therefore, um, you know that's extra money getting pumped into the system from an MMT framework like that. So yeah, no wonder the stock market kept going up, and only the MMTers got this one right. And just again, running victory laps when it's you know maybe there won't be a recession, and then I'll look stupid. But my point is, this is all consistent with the yield curve. In other words, it's not like right now the people who relied on the yield curve have something to explain. It's like, no, this is still, you wouldn't have expected it to hit yet mm-hmm. that, you know, in terms of how, you know, it's inverted and then starts coming back. So anyway, there, there was that element. Also, let me mention, since I had brought up folks, the, uh, the fact that the federal open market committee's notes as of the, their December, 2007 meeting, they didn't realize they were in a recession yet. I had a Mises.org piece that ran in October, 2007. And the title of which was, the worst recession in 25 years, question mark. And I was just using standard Austrian business cycle theory to say, you know, look at how artificially low interest rates have been. Now they're starting to raise them. And so, and, the, and I said, the last time we had seen such a massive bout of negative in terms of inflation adjusted interest rates was back in the late seventies, which, you know, then ushered in the bad recessions of the early eighties, which at that point were, were the worst since the great recession or great depression, excuse me. So anyway, not that that proves anything, but I am just saying that it's not mere nitpicking that when the Federal Reserve staff uh, back in the fall of 2007 didn't see any problems, I was at Mises.org, and of course we'll link to it, folks, saying I think we're in store for the worst recession in 25 years. Well, I was in high school at the time, but <laughs> I, I did look uh, back at some old uh, Mises Wire articles, and uh, and this was in preparation for my recent uh, Mises University talk. Um, and I I found some like in two thousand two, two thousand three, two thousand four in that time frame. So really early on in the inflation of the of the housing bubble, um, uh, people like Sean Corrigan and Mark Thornton famously. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, pr- not not just saying oh there's a recession coming. So a lot of times Austrians are uh, uh, we're sort of uh, characterized as uh, broken clocks that we're just yeah, yeah we're always saying Perma that there's bears. going to be a recession. Yeah, yeah. And, we predicted so, 19 of the last three recessions. Yeah, yeah. and so we it. just run around and, and declare victory whenever there is a recession. But if you go back and look at the text, uh, I, I don't have it with me right now, but if you go back and look, it's actually extremely accurate in in, in the very precise things that, that they were predicting, mm-hmm. like talking about the um, the lax uh, lending practices and mortgages, talking about how uh, Fannie and Freddie would need a, a, a bailout, all of these sorts of things. And, and, and they were being very precise about it. So it's not... They weren't 
broken clocks. They weren't just, you know, saying the same things that they've said for decades. They, they were being very, they were looking at the data. They were looking at what was happening around them and they were, and they realized, Hey, this, this sort of thing is not sustainable. And then they said with, with remarkable, like almost scary accuracy, what would happen a few years uh, down the road? Yeah. I don't, Remember the Corrigan? I, I believe you, of course, because I do know that he had some good stuff. Off the top of my head, I can't remember some of his ones, but yeah, I remember after the you know financial crisis and then the rounds of QE started, I was like on a lecture circuit speaking to crowds, like in the context of you know find they worked in the financial sector. I wasn't just speaking to uh, you know quote regular people, but it was like conferences organized under the auspices of people working in the financial sector. And I was just showing them charts and stuff about the housing bubble and how I thought, you know, loose fed policy. And then, yeah, one of the ways I would sort of bolster support for this perspective I was offering would be to say, Hey, look at the quote, this guy, Mark Thornton is an Austrian economist and he was using this framework and look at what he said back in 2004. And I agree with you, Jonathan, it was eerie Mm -hmm. just how spot on. And again, folks, it wasn't just like, Fiat money bad, run for the hills, <laughs> buy gold. You know, thank you. That's my TED talk. It, it was it was more specific stuff like that, and just talking about how the taxpayer was going to have to bail out Fannie and Freddie and all this. So yeah, it was remarkably on point and specific. And also, we should probably mention if you've never seen it, go look. I'll, I'll put links, folks, in the show notes page. But the two two types of YouTube compilations, one called Peter Schiff was right, where he's just going through. And what's great about it is like in two thousand six, he's saying stuff that's totally spot on as to what's going to happen in the next 18 months. And it's not that the people on the other side are saying, well, Mr. Schiff, I respectfully disagree with your perspective because no, they're literally laughing in his face. Mm -hmm. That's how stupid they think he is. Like, Oh, housing you think is way over. What are you nuts, Peter? And it's so it's just amazing just to see the mentality, how even though house prices were rising at clearly unsustainable rates, everybody just thought it was, it was fine. And that the naysayers were nuts uh, and then the other video compilation that's great is Ben Bernanke was wrong. And it just shows how even before he was Fed chair, when he was just like a, on the Council of Economic Advisors, I think, going back at least to 2006, maybe even earlier, where every step of the way, he just kept down. At first it was, oh, yeah, there's some froth in, uh, you know, in the subprime sector, but it's not going to. And then it was, okay, yeah, the entire housing sector is in trouble, but it's not going to cause a recession. And then it was, yep, there's going to be a recession, all right, but we think it's going to be modest and we'll pull through and the recovery will be robust. And, you know, and just every step along the way, just either either lying or wrong, uh, you know, take your pick, who, who knows, but um, just amazing. And so, again, and, and, and he's the guy that everyone just, you know, heralded as the savior. And thank God we had Bernanke at the helm because otherwise things would have been worse. You know, in other words, we all admit things were the worst since the Great Depression. But it was always you know grading on a curve or you know against the counterfactual. What if, what if something like Ron Paul Goldbug Kook had been in charge? Then, then you know we wouldn't even be using computers anymore. It would be so primitive. So I, while you were talking, I found the the Corrigan quote that I was talking about. So this is from December third, two thousand two. And and here's here's what he says. But both Freddie and Fannie are doing everything possible to encourage more debt. They have online mortgage applications. You can even get an online appraisal of your house. There's a subterranean literature on the fringes of the mainstream press about how the appraisal process in home loans has been corrupted in this boom. The appraiser is paid if the loan goes through. Therefore, the potential borrower or purchaser or even the vendor can prod the appraiser to give a higher valuation just to get the deal done. Even with the inflation and prices that we've seen, 
It's worse than it looks because the house values aren't there in the first place. So he was he was noticing the the building mm-hmm. up of this bubble very early, and this is this was on a, a Mises publication, uh, December two thousand two. Yeah, another element in all this because afterward I went through and I really wanted to, I wasn't you know I didn't have an ideological axe to grind. I really wanted to understand what the heck just happened because you know prima facie it is weird, right, Jonathan? That like these banks would be a, you know, they had these things called liar loans and stuff, right? Where the person would fill out an application for a mortgage and list, oh, this is my job. This is my annual income. And, and the the legend arose to say that the banks knew full, at least in many cases, they knew full well the guy was lying. Like, no, he doesn't earn, he doesn't have that kind of a salary, but yet they pretended to believe it so that it would go through underwriting so they could go ahead and get, get the, you know, get the mortgage approved to get him in the house. And so you'd wonder, well, why would they do that? You know, that's their money. And then the idea is, well, because they were going to pay, they knew they weren't going to sit on the mortgage. They were going to sell it off to Wall Street. And then, so that would push the question back. Okay, why did the Wall Street firms want to buy stuff that, you know, if if I know that there's liar loans going on and after researching for 15 minutes, don't these Wall Street investment banks know that, you know, with their teams of uh, quants and stuff. And then the argument was, well, because they were going to package it up and sell it to other investors so they weren't going to sit on it either so they didn't care and i was like okay well how come then like these chinese investors did and it was well because you know they were given triple a ratings and stuff like that because they were the fancy derivatives and blah blah mortgage-backed securities and different tranches and risk profile and then okay so how and, and it got to the point where um i think some of it was that it was just an intellectual error where um the these computer models that were given triple a rate so the idea folks was like you'd have a mortgage-backed security. So I'm making these numbers up, obviously, but like there's this asset where they would take um, pieces of a thousand different mortgages from around the country and plop them into this thing. So every time on one of those mortgages, someone made their payment, you know, 1% of it went into this particular mortgage-backed security. And that was true for these ones spread all over the country. And so then you're picturing like filling up, like a bucket filling with water. And then, you know, the lowest tranche would be the safest that, as long as just 10% of the people made their payments that month, you know, that would get hit. And so they would sell that slice to somebody and that was like triple a, and then the higher up you got, the more likelihood there was of a default. And so they'd sell that at a lower price, obviously. So there's an implied greater chance of return as long as the payments are made. So for those low ones though, it was like they had computer models assessing and they had historical patterns of defaults and housing credit. So they knew in any given market, yeah, house prices could go down 10% a year. That, that's happened before, and they could you know, do, run the numbers and say, what's the chance of that happening? But the crucial intellectual mistake they made in the modeling, so, so I gathered, was they assumed that all the real estate markets were local and independent variables. So the idea was, yeah, the Miami market might go down 10%, and Las Vegas might go down 10%, and Anchorage, Alaska might go down, but they wouldn't think they would all go down 10% in the same time because the chance of that would be, you know, the one whatever, 1% times 1%. It was like, you know, one in a million chance of that happening. And yet that is what happened. Right. And we, as Austrians would say, right, because they actually weren't uncorrelated independent events. They were all driven by the systematic intervention of the you know fed and so forth. So anyway, that's just one element of it where I think some of these people really were just bedazzled by these fancy models based on equations taken from, you know, physics or whatever, and that that's uh, partly what happened. And so some of these outside investors really did think they were getting stuff that 
no, this is super safe. You know, this is modern quantitative finance. So that was just part of what was going on with this this boom period where people really, you know, like to think that, okay, yeah, we've learned from the, the mistakes of the past, but this time's going to be different, as the phrase goes. Okay, so I wonder uh, what, so obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. We can look back at, you know, the housing bubble of, of the 2000s and see some uh, some canaries in the coal mine. But what, what, I mean, besides the things that we've already mentioned, like the yield curve um, and that sort of stuff, and, and like the misallocations during COVID, uh, what are what are some of the the canaries in the coal mine that you see, especially like in in this this year, um, things like the the banking crisis or, or other things yeah. that are going on? Right, right, yeah. You just took the words out. Oh, that was the first one I was going to go to. Is that again? I don't understand why everyone just oh, phew, we dodged a bullet, folks. That you know, there's lots of banks that still and so again, just for people, part of what was going on is be you know, uh, treasuries are supposed to be super safe. But then the problem is if you have a longer term treasury, you know, like a 10 or 20 year that you were holding and now interest rates rise rapidly, which is what happened, then the market value of that security goes down. And so a bunch of banks were sitting on those things thinking they were, you know, super solid things to sit on. And then, oops, their market value goes way down. And then for banks that were in a vulnerable position, now the public learns of that. And then they go and want their money out. And so then the banks can't hold the trip. You know, in other words, if the market value of your bond gets marked down, but you can still hold it to maturity, then it's okay. You know, it's not, you kind of dodge the bullet. Whereas if you have to sell that thing early in order to raise funds because your depositors want their money back, that's when you have to realize the loss and you get killed. And so like, that's what happened to Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other ones that officially went down. But the point is there were still lots of you know, hundreds and hundreds of billions of unrealized losses on treasuries held by the banks so far. And so that, you know, that, that didn't get magically solved. And so that, you know, we, there are people still warning that that's still sitting there. And just because it fell off the news cycle doesn't mean that that problem has been fixed. Yeah. And, and on that, uh, it's, it's not, uh, all of the, the vulner, vulnerabilities in the bank balance sheets, uh, those will exist even if the Fed doesn't keep increasing rates. So the fact that they, if they keep interest rates where they are now, which is, I think it's in like the 5.25 to 5.5% uh, range, even if they keep it there for uh, a while, that's going to do some damage to to the banks um, over time. So some other um, canaries in the coal mine that I've, I've noticed uh, just recently, one of the big uh, shipping companies just went bankrupt. Um, and they laid off 30,000 workers. And e- even though, like, uh, um, I saw data that uh, jobless uh, claims and layoffs aren't increasing overall, but there are some pretty high-profile ones, especially in tech, like in uh, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Disney. Those guys have announced some some uh, layoffs in the thousands. And like I said, it's not it's not very broad. It's it's localized. But um, the thing is, I think I think what happens is. Uh, it takes root in the news cycle and, and entrepreneurs do some reevaluation of what their businesses look like. And then they start doing the same sort of thing. And so I, I, I definitely think that there, there are some, some, some fundamentals in the economy that are not sound um, this time around. And we're, I don't think that we're heading for a soft landing because of those stories like that. Yeah. There's also like real estate, um, I was just looking at the Case Shiller residential measure, and that you know it's skyrocketed after COVID let up, 
presumably, you know, there's lots of different people were pent up and then people wanted to relocate, um, you know, go into different jurisdictions and stuff. I think a lot of people wanted to get the heck out of states that had been really aggressive on the lockdowns and so forth and mandates. Uh, and then coupled with the supply bottlenecks, we, you know, what happened with the price of lumber and such like that. Um, and then I know there's like this odd thing where I don't, I mean, this is anecdotal. I've had a bunch of real estate brokers tell me this, and I don't know how much this is, you know, true in the aggregate, but the idea being that normally you would have thought as mortgage rates went up along with the other interest rates that home prices should have come tumbling down. And yet that didn't happen. And the explanation I heard was that, yeah, it's this weird quirk where because mortgage rates went up so fast, a lot of people who normally would have sold just, you know, for various reasons, you change your job or whatever, you want to get a different school district because you're having a baby and that kind of stuff. Nobody did, or a lot fewer people did that because they realized, whoa, like right now I've got my whatever, very low mortgage rate locked in because I bought before rates went up. And so I don't want to sell my house now because then I'm going to move and have to you know pay a mortgage that's four points higher than the one I'm paying right now. That's crazy. I'm not going to do that. And so you had this weird thing where people weren't selling and yet other people still needed to buy. And so like that, that was they, the argument was that's why home prices were being propped up for that weird quirk. But that, you know, at some point that's going to drop off. Like people do need to still move and they're going to put their houses up for sale. And so um, I heard that also too. I just know a combination of things, rising mortgage rates. And then also after COVID people not wanting to go back into the office in certain sectors, the vacancy rates in commercial real estate are ludicrous, like especially out in California. I've just seen some figures for some of the markets there where it's like 40% vacancy rates. I mean, it's just crazy. So again, I think there's a lot of these things where, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing like it was with the housing market, you know, back during the bubble years, like you're talking about Jonathan, where if the stuff comes crashing down, everyone's going to be like, Oh yeah, that was obvious. Yeah. Of course that's going to, Whereas right now is, oh, everything's fine. You guys are just such fear mongers because you don't like <laughs> Joe Biden. Yeah, uh, I, I was just reading about the commercial real estate stuff earlier. Um, I, I, I was, uh, it was an article about uh, shopping malls, which those articles were pretty popular uh, back in the day when online shopping was becoming a thing. But apparently there's a new crisis with uh, shopping malls, like the retail commercial um, stuff. And, and I saw like some pretty like crazy numbers, like uh, land that was, uh, valued in the hundreds of millions of dollars is now like less than ten million dollars uh, today, and it, over the course of you know five years or so. So I, I I do think that there's some some pretty big vulnerabilities in the commercial real estate market. Yeah, and I mean what I thought you were going to say is too. I I know I haven't sat down and done a complete nationwide assessment, but I've seen lots of anecdotal evidence again of just crime rates in certain areas are ridiculous, like shoplifting and stuff, people just going in and cleaning stores out. So I think it's the kind of thing where if things start to tip a little bit, you know, like an mm -hmm. unemployment rate does start ticking up and whatever that you are going to see all of a sudden this massive flood of things that right now are just, you know, it's like the, the cracks in the dam. And, uh, Again, it'll. I think unfortunately, it might be things where people are going to be afterwards shocked. All right, the the clock is. We're running out of time here, so why don't we let? I'll, I'll say what I, I'm going to say, and then you can choose to do whatever you want to, Jonathan. So I have been on record. It would be silly for me at this point to be coy and try to you know th uh, hedge myself. That I have been saying for a while, just looking at the inverted yield curve. You know what what we know what the Fed's done and so forth. The fact that the debt just keeps getting piled up. That 
I think they might not know it in real time, but I think that, you know, retrospectively, the NBER is going to say that the next recession began in late, you know, fourth quarter 2023 or first quarter 2024. If that doesn't happen, you know, barring some huge advance from AI or something, you know, that we could obviously say, oh, yeah, well, that kind of made humanity 10% wealthier. That's what happened, or aliens showing up, whatever it may be. But barring some kind of miraculous thing like that, I'm going to be very surprised if the U.S. does get through, you know, into well into 2024 without having had a recession. So I agree with you, Jonathan. It might not be as bad as one might suppose, but that's to me, it's going to be very surprising if that if that can happen. And again, not just from an Austrian perspective, but just you know all kinds of other perspectives as well. So what do, what do you want to say to the good folks? I agree. That sounds good to me. I, I would be very surprised <laughs> if uh, if we can get through uh, 2024 without uh, a recession on, um, published by the NBER. Okay, well, there you have it, folks. An older guy and a younger guy going out on a limb. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Thank you for your time, Jonathan. I know you just had a good time at, at Mises University. Uh, we appreciate your insights. And, folks, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.